Welcome to GeekCast with your host, Todd Newton. For the uninitiated, how did uh, pyramids on Mars come together? Uh, pyramids on Mars was uh, was formed in actually um, it was January 11th of 2011, and um, the concept for pyramids on Mars was uh, I was getting back to what I originally loved to do uh, originally you know back in in high school, which was to uh, do instrumental rock music. I was in I was in two other bands prior to Pyramids on Mars, um, Firestorm and Shatter Instincts, and yeah, they were more uh, standard type of a band with uh, with a singer and uh, Shatter Instinct. We were very Tool influenced. There was there's a lot of you know odd time signatures that were going on there. We played very detuned. Um, some of that influence still carried over into Pyramids on Mars, but um, Pyramids on Mars was my um, um, what I, what I really wanted to do with music all my life was to create uh, music more in the style of Joe Satriani, uh, which was my, my first love. And um, um, then I just spent uh, uh, um, two or three years putting my first uh, first album together. And it was uh, at first it was um, I had to kind of reinvent myself because uh, being a solo project, all of a sudden I wasn't playing with other with other musicians. And I was always used to, you know, writing music in a band situation where, you know, we'd uh, hit the, you know, record button on on our, you know, ghetto blaster with a microphone and, and start recording stuff and then start building songs from natural jam sessions. All of a sudden, it was just, you know, it was just, it was just me. So um, it was kind of terrifying at first, <clears throat> but uh, I eventually learned um, um, a new process for writing songs and. And then the songs actually just started to write themselves, and I just felt like I was um, just kind of like the um, the director of a of a symphony, you know, <laughs> kind of directing where things were supposed to go. And be- you know, before I knew it, a, you know, the song a you know, song was written, and then I went on to the next song. So that's kind of where where Pyramids of Mars uh, originated from. Did you ever consider um, Did you ever consider bringing on any additional musicians? Um, at, at, for this period of time in my life, it just wasn't feasible to do that with, uh, you know, with, with the situation that was, I was in. Um, my situation has changed considerably since then, and I'm now at the point where I'm actually, uh, would like to, uh, put a band, you know, a, a full band together. I'm actually already doing that now for live performances. Uh, 2020 is uh, is the focus of basically uh, performing, and that's the, really what I'm just focusing on. And then by adding the right musicians into the right element, then then I can start to write more as I used to as a band and start adding other elements of you know the input from other other musicians. So you know I I, I, I see that in the future, you know in the near the, the future. It's kind of similar to you know how Satriani started out because his first. Two solo albums, Not of the Surf and and, uh, and uh, Surfing with the Alien, were all done in a studio with uh, with uh, uh, um, the producer, and and he found the musicians to you know to fill in the do the bass parts, or they used drum machines and stuff like that to put the first two albums together, and then and then when Flying the Blue Dream came along, he was able to get to that stage where he's able to work with real musicians and start to 
um, they come start to start to sound more like a real band. So, you know, it, it's it's a it's a work in progress, and you know, as as you evolve and as you have more options available to you. Now, with the mixing process, how difficult is it for you to take all these different pieces and all these different sonicscapes that you've created for each record together? Is it a laborious task for you? Uh, that's a good question. Um, sometimes it is. Um, I learned a lot from between my first uh, first debut album, Pyramids on Mars, and 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 continued to learn even through Echo Cosmic, and then even into into uh, uh, Edge of the Black, because the more instruments you add, the more muddy the waters can get, unless you're really uh, in tune with trying to find the right frequency you know, so that every instrument is sitting in, in, a, in a frequency that's not interfering with another frequency. And when, when, you're, when, you're, when you're actually you know, mixing music, there's a very small band that you're actually working with uh, you know, when you're mixing things down, particularly when you start adding a lot more keyboards. And if you add two or three keyboards, all of a sudden it's like it can end up sounding just like one keyboard and things can get lost in the mix. So sometimes less is more when you want to emphasize certain things. But then in songs like uh, Time to Believe, where you know, I've got you know, the, the main um, rhythm section is being held together by the bass, drums, guitar, and then, then you're adding a choral section into it in one part, and then you're adding a whole orchestra on top of that at another section. That gets really tricky because then you're 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 dealing with multiple frequencies and trying to make sure that every instrument is cutting through the mix, and uh, it takes a lot of finesse to you know to to rework that and rework that. I would say probably twenty five percent of my time with with Edge of the Black was spent writing the music, and then probably seventy five percent was in mixing. To be honest. And you go back again, you go back again, you go back again, and it's just a tedious job. Because if you change even just one instrument, it can throw throw every other instrument out, and you got to retune every other one. So it's you know it's there's a lot of fine art. It's a, a fine art to mixing, and you know I really have you know, a huge admiration for for producers. Now, aside from uh, the previously discussed Satriani influence, where else are you drawing things from? I hear a lot of elements of both classical and just in general Baroque music. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I cut my teeth originally with Satriani. Uh, I first heard Satriani when I was in grade 10. Uh, when my you know, my best friend said, you know, we were sitting in the home room, and he said, hey, check out this guitar player, Joe Satriani. He's amazing. And then he, he handed me Dot of this Earth and Surfing with the Alien. It just happened to be that that same week our, our, we were moving into a new school, and the school uh, was being closed for another whole week because it wasn't ready. So I took those two CDs home, and that probably was the week that changed my entire life when I heard Satriani and I realized that's what I wanted to do with my life and that's how I wanted to play guitar. So that was a foundation, and then um, uh, you know a friend introduced me to uh, he had Ingve Malmsteen marching out, and he put that album on, and I was just blown away by what Malmsteen was playing, um, how fast he was playing, the kind of riffs he was playing was just amazing, and and this the music sounded very classically influenced, so I was I was hugely influenced by by Malmsteen, and so. There 
was actually a point in my in my in my uh, career that it was between when was it? Actually, before the first album, I actually literally spent two whole years listening to nothing but Malmsteen. I mean, really, I listened to no music except for Malmsteen. I was like, it was like a, I was like a monk in a monastery, studying him, listening to him every day until I learned his style. And then, but I didn't want to become another Malmsteen clone, so I realized I had to listen to you know what he was influenced by, which was Baroque classical music. And then I started listening to Bach and Vivaldi. And then I just couldn't stop listening to, to Bach and Vivaldi. I was, it was like the music was four-dimensional or three-dimensional. And, and then I was just, I just became grossly and fell in love with, with Baroque classical music. And to this day, you know, I, the only radio station I listen to is 96.3 FM, all classical FM from Toronto. And that's where I gain, get most of my inspiration from, is from, uh, from Borough Classical Music. I got several box CDs and some Vivaldi CDs. And uh, I also, you know, listened to uh, Paganini, too. I learned a lot from his 24 Caprices and pulled a lot of uh, licks from that. And that incorporated some of his technique, techniques into, into the stuff I do on guitar. What I do on guitar, uh, I don't listen to guitar players anymore. I stopped listening to guitar players a long time ago. I'm actually more inspired by violin, my violin and what the violin is doing and how the violin sits in, in an orchestra. So that's where I draw my inspiration from is listening to violin melodies and then what I hear there is and I transcribe that on guitar. Now a lot of what you do uh, with Pyramids on Mars is influenced by your experiences with the extraterrestrial. Can you give us a basis of where everything started with that? Oh boy! <laughs> we can start with the basics because we could be here all night. <laughs> oh my God! Um, well, the, the 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 truth is is that when I formed Pyramids on Mars, it was also a combination that I wanted to use it as a catalyst to help raise the awareness of the extraterrestrial presence on Earth, and also, you know, what's been going on in anomalies in our galaxy. And that, you know, these star nation beings have been here for thousands, you know, if not millions of years. And, and that disclosure is coming close and learning more and more about the truth of who we are and, 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 and their presence and who they are. Well, I, little did I know that actually this was always the purpose of my life because it was August 21st of 2014 and uh, an interdimensional craft flew across my backyard. Now, the thing is, like, you know, I, I had studied ETs for years, you know, and, you know, for, like, you know, back in 2000, I was, I was adamantly, like, you know, like, guys, I'm here, I want to help, come down, talk to me, let's, get, let's do this, let's get this going, I want to help and help raise consciousness. So I was really frustrated because I, I really felt like this was my purpose in life. And that's why I created Pyramids on Mars, was as well to, you know, with that image of Pyramids on Mars, that there are anomalies on Mars, that there is a civilization on Mars, and there's a lot more to our hidden history that's been suppressed. So I'm trying to bring all this information out, and then this UFO flies across my backyard. And it was only, like, 100 yards away. Like, it was close enough I could probably, you know, throw, throw a baseball at it. And it's, it was about 40 or 50 feet wide, and it was a disc. It came out from behind my neighbor's tree on my left, on my right hand side. 
and it just went across the distance of my backyard. And this thing is massive. And at first, I didn't even know what I was looking at because I had never seen a UFO before, and this thing displayed physics that I had never seen. And it was I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I mean, this this thing was it was uh, it was covered in it looked like smoke coming off the top of it and off the bottom of it. It was glowing like glowing orange and red, and it was actually only two dimensional. You know, it only had height and width. It had no depth to it. It looked like a, like um, like a homeless guy, and it moved across my backyard, and then it moved south towards Bimbrook, and 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 disappeared. And uh, the, you know, the long and short of it was, I filled out a, a, a full report to MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, uh, who are the uh, the the group in the United States and Canada and the worldwide who does UFO investigations, and they actually investigated my case. And it ended up being that uh, it was uh, it was that they they presented my case at the first Alien Cosmic Expo in Brantford, Ontario, the first UFO conference in Ontario. So they were there, and part of their presentation was talking about my my particular case because it was one of their more most authentic um, documented sightings because of the certain anomalies that uh, I had described. So that was kind of like the what I realized after when I met with Grant Cameron who's a uh, very uh, world-famous uh, UFO researcher and well-respected, he actually has been studying this, this phenomenon in connection between extraterrestrials and musicians, and he was doing a presentation of it at that Alien Cosmic Expo. And that's when I discovered that he was, you know, when I, when I went to and found out he was doing a presentation, I realized that, that I'm part of this group of, of musicians who've been, been contacted for a higher purpose. And, I, and it, was, it was like this crazy synchronicities that were going on, and it was it was nuts. It was just crazy. And I realized I was supposed to go and see Grant to find out what the heck was going on. And then when I did, I learned so much and realized that that the UFO nobody else had contact with the craft. Um, I was actually the only one who actually witnessed it and reported it. And they were actually they were actually able to do that, shut everybody down so they can talk to you know have contact with somebody and, and no one else. And it basically was kind of like my awakening that you know your mission is to begin. But I've had ET contact continuously ever since then. It's like an ongoing, ongoing thing for me. Considering the amount of contact you've had, do you think they mean us harm in any way? The no, no, they don't. Not, not, not the benevolent ones. The ones that the that people should be wary of are the ones who are not from from other planets. They are the the other star nations that are below ground. The ones who've been controlling things behind the scenes for thousands of years. Um, people talk about the Illuminati and you know, you know, reptilian controllers. Yes, that is real. There are there are reptilian control groups who've been they're much older than 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 humans, and they have been manipulating humanity behind the scenes for tens of thousands of years, controlling the information systems. Uh, controlling uh, our belief systems, controlling uh, a lot of, you know, manipulating religions to suit their needs. So there's a huge amount. We don't realize that we are actually, we are basically livestock to them, and we are very easily controlled, and people follow, they follow, you know, the, the status quo very easily. We are very easily controlled and, and, um, and manipulated, but they are losing their power very quickly. 
because official first contact is coming. So that there are many guardian groups who are here to protect us and have been protecting us from larger problems and trying to and trying to make sure that we don't destroy ourselves. And they've already saved us several times and people have no idea how close we've come to nuclear disasters and they've actually intervened to stop those things. But they're they're not miracle workers. They can't control everything. Now, although Edge of Black is obviously a largely instrumental project outside of the samples, um, do you consider it to be a concept recording? It is a concept album. Yeah, it's it's definitely a concept album. Um, Edge of the Black is not something that I I created. Uh, Edge of the Black was actually taught to me by the uh, extraterrestrial group who I've been in most contact with. And uh, to understand that, uh, a friend of mine told me that there was a group of extraterrestrials. He told me about three years ago that there's a group of extraterrestrials who are using Twitter. If you go to at Sandia Wisdom, they're actually um, Zetas, so, you know, the greys that people often, you know, know about with the, the large black eyes and, you know, larger heads, grayer skin and short, they're shorter. Um, there is a, a base underneath the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a base that's uh, about two miles underground. It's been there for... Uh, They've been there for at least 10,000 years. The, the base itself is much older than that. It used to be a human civilization uh, for a civilization that was abandoned 50,000 years ago. But the long and short of it was that I ended up meeting, becoming friends with uh, with the Sandia, uh, uh, Sandia gang, particularly two in particular who became great teachers for me. Uh, one is named, her name is Teeny. And then there, the other is Thera. Teeny was teaching me one day. First, she told me that you realize that uh, she said to me in a private tweet, she said, Kevin, do you understand that music can be communicated on a telepathic level? And I was like, no, I didn't understand this. I didn't know this was possible. And then she said, well, you're actually already doing it. And then I asked her if she could help me to develop this ability. And she said, yes. And so for the last two and a half years, they've been working with me to help me develop my telepathic ability to communicate my guitar level, guitar playing at a telepathic level. So what you're hearing in Edge of the Black, the music is actually being, is actually played at a telepathic level and is recorded at a telepathic level. Now that's just part of the, of the story. Then she's telling me, she talks about the Edge of the Black and what she explains is, and this is actually the same concept that Grant Cameron, as I told you, the famous UFO researcher, when I first met him, he was already doing a presentation on the same concept, but from his own, his own research, from his own understandings. Uh, and he had a different, you know, he was looking at it from a different angle. So I already heard it, already understood from what he was talking about, about creativity and consciousness, and how so many musicians seem to get music that just comes from nowhere. Like they just, the music comes from, from, they just write a song and they don't even know where the song came from, or a song comes in a dream. And how many songs have come to, you know, great hits have come to musicians where it just came in a dream, or it was just like an instant, like, download. They didn't even, you know, it just, it just came to them. And they felt like they didn't even write it. So, Grant Cameron was already well aware of this concept and this and, and was studying this phenomenon. It was Teeny who explained to me from the 
extraterrestrial perspective of what's going on. And what she said is, it's called the edge of the black. And she said, what you do is you go to the edge of the universe, where nothingness and everything exists, you turn around, and you listen for the next song to be sung to you. And what is happening is that, you know, you have to understand, when you start to understand telepathy and understand consciousness, and how everyone is connected, that we're all, we all have the ability to be telepathic, that all beings are all connected consciously. It's, we're all part of creator, all part of source. You want to call it God, you can, whatever you want to call it. We're all part of the same consciousness, and there is a collective consciousness. And, and telepathic nations, star nations, communicate telepathically. It's the most common language in, in the galaxies. But what they're explaining is that the music comes through the collective, through the collective consciousness, and then you are then interpreting, you're actually um, increasing um, your emotional content to it and your own interpretation, and then you are writing music from what's coming through the universe, and then you are then the creator, and then you're sending it back out into the universe. And this is what the edge of the black is. This is where creativity comes from. That it's not just isolated to just musicians. It come, it's for any type of art, whether you're, you know, writing a, a novel, or whether you're drawing a painting, or whatever your art form is. When you get in, when you when you slow your brain waves down and get into a more of a telepathic flow, you're then c- connecting with the universe, and and that your creativity is flowing through with the collective consciousness, and that's the edge of the black. Can you explain to us the concept behind Nachtwaffen? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, okay. Nachtwaffen is, is German for dark fleet. And to understand what Nachtwaffen is, uh, you have to understand that because of my uh, my being in the UFO subculture, like the UFO deep deep world, and the friends that I have in, in the deep world of the of UFO culture, I've made friends with several uh, people who are veterans of the secret space programs. So there are deep space secret space programs that have been going on uh, beyond what people can even comprehend or even imagine. This is the stuff of science fiction, but it's not science fiction. It's actually real It's real technology. Because what happened was that after Germany lost the war, they were already, they had already uh, reverse-engineered yeah, extraterrestrial technology, and they had their own flying saucers called Hanabus. So there, the Germans had had flying saucers and had reverse-engineered anti-gravity machines. They also had stealth technology. They had they had lots of high technology. Well, what happened was that um, this this information was suppressed because you know it's not cool for you know the United States or you know the other other nations to you know to realize that they didn't have this technology, and so this history has been buried. But what happened was that a lot of Nazi Germany, they, they fled to Antarctica. What then happened was that they, uh, the, the United States was well aware of this, and so they sent Admiral Byrd, who took a, uh, four, four fleets of Navy, of Navy ships down to Antarctica to basically destroy 
the Nazis who had fled to there. This is all historical. You can look this up. Look up, look up Project Hijump back in 1944 or 1946. They get down there. And then all of a sudden, out of the water comes these Hanabus, these German flying saucers with lasers. And within 20 to 30 minutes, the battle was over. They had already they had already cut one of their ships, split in half, and it sunk to the water, and they fled. And this was, and then they reported this to Eisenhower and explained the situation. And this became the beginning of the secret space program and the race for the United States to to get to get. Um, get this the same technology, okay? And that's what's, what sparked this. To get back to what Nafwaffen is, Nafwaffen is the advancement of those the, that first German fleet, and then they advanced more, and they've now been in space since that time, since 46, and they've been doing trade routes, and, and there's battles going on. There's all kinds of crazy things going on, and Nafwaffen is the German, is the German fleet, uh, dark fleet which uh, for several of my friends were actually uh, working for Nafwaffen. Um, you can look up any interview with Penny Bradley. She's a friend of mine, and she's well-respected and well-known in, in the industry. Um, Corey Good knows her very, very well. You, you probably know Corey Good. or worry about Corey Good. Moving back to... So that's the story behind Nafwaffen. Moving back to... Uh, the musical side of things, you mentioned in 2020 you're definitely looking to get out and tour live. Uh, how close are you to making something like that happen? Well, right now I'm just in the process of uh, taking care of uh, some private affairs uh, to get myself organized to be able to get to that next level. And then I've already started to um, talk to drummers, and I'll be auditioning drummers. I have uh, my brother... Uh, he's, he's still, my brother's still playing bass with us, and then other parts of the music are being uh, triggered through, uh, through through laptop to fill out the sound. So that um, uh, is in the game works, and then start rehearsing come uh, the end of January or February, and then start hooking up with other bands in this area and start creating uh, um, uh, showcases. And then also, uh, you know, working towards playing at other festivals too within the uh, the greater, uh, you know, greater southern Ontario area. And then basically, then expanding from there as as things can progress and grow. What type of set list do you think you'll be working with once you finally do get out on the road with it? Oh boy, I got a huge set list. I mean, I got three album <laughs> three albums now. So um, I actually worked it out. I have enough music to do two 45-minute sets back-to-back. -back. You know, I could do a full, a full massive show. I could do, like, a same, you know, a same full-length show that Rush could put on. You know, two 45-minute sets is a lot of live music to play. And that's, that's, yeah, that's what I have to play with. Actually, it's probably even more than that now. I would say that that would be on the, that would be on the conservative side of how, what I have uh, for playing live. Yeah. Stay tuned for more GeekCasts from www.bigmusicgeek.com.